opportunity to give. And uh, yeah. Let me introduce uh, the next, well, just the summer series of sermons, at least as the Spirit's guiding now. We're going to be looking at different characters all throughout scriptures, biographies, in a way, if, if you will. Um, and I think it's important for us, some of us will know all of the characters that I'm, you know, that I think the Lord's leading me to. I don't know, particularly obscure. But I think it's important that we do it uh, because maybe everybody isn't familiar with them and, it, and it's kind of an awkward thing. Have you ever walked into a movie that's already started, it's significantly in, and sometimes even in the opening scene, you miss stuff. And then you just go, well, who's that? Why are they doing that? Who, you know, who are they talking about right there? Right? Like, you just, you need to know the setup. You need to know who's being referred to all the way along. And I think that's how some of us feel when we hear names like Moses, Abraham, David. We're thinking, like, is that Abraham Lincoln that he's mentioning in church? If we are. We usually use the name Lincoln tied to it. Is it Moses Malone? No, it's like a different Moses. Um, you know, like, so it's not just like in pity, but it's in, we've got to know this word. And, I, and I'm hoping to give you some links this summer so that as you read the word of God, you can say, oh, there's a cohesive story here. And so be a little bit more perhaps in teacher mode, especially today, at least I think, um, so that we can learn the word of God, learn what he says. And so that we can always, um, one of my goals is to, to just keep pointing us to Jesus, right? Like he's not one of the 12 names that I picked for the summer, but you're going to hear his name a lot because like, how many of you have the, the children's Bible called the Jesus Storybook Bible? Has any, any of you have that? If you read it every time, it just keeps pointing forward to the rescuer, to the one who came to save. So this morning, it seemed to make sense to me to look at... Adam and Eve, right? Like, let's just start at the start. And I'm not meaning to insult anybody, because if you have picked up a Bible even once, and you made it to page three, you have read what we're going to look at this morning in Genesis chapter three. I was thinking this week as I read uh, the book of Genesis, which means beginnings, as I was reading, I was like, man, I wish I could go back and hear this for the first time. That God is there at the start, creatively um, separating things, calling things good and beautiful. He's making positive and negative charges. He's making light and darkness, wetness and dryness, the, the heavens above, the earth below, the seas. God creates space. And then he fills that space with good things, with stars, with plants, with animals, with fish. God is an amazing artist, and some of us are drawn to him as creation speaks to, to say who God is. We're just his artistry, but also just the amazing science that's there. A lot of us approach Genesis chapter 1, not with the biological science only there, but just looking at like the geology and the, the universe. We look up into the heavens and the stars and the, the, the light years. Of galaxy, the distances, I'm probably not using light years correctly there, but you, you get, you, like, this is some 
heavy stuff. And I have to set this up because I don't want to just jump to Adam and Eve. If we're looking in Genesis, it's pretty clear we have to see life is extraordinary. Life is created by God. But unfortunately, we can talk sometimes safely within the church about God as an artist. We can talk about that with the rest of the world. Like, wow, Lord, a sunset that God has painted. We haven't always, as Christians, at least in my lifetime, interacted well with science. We don't take science seriously. We don't trust it. And while this, I don't intend to have a, a sermon on creation versus evolution this morning or, or the age of the earth, I think it's important to look at how do we read the scripture here? Dr. Georgia Purdom holds a a PhD in molecular biology from the Ohio State University. I don't know why they do that. She says, <laughs> she says, we don't have to like their sports team, but she got a molecular genetics degree from there. She says, I have often heard Christians say that it doesn't matter whether Genesis presents true history, such as the marriage of Cain, Creation's a side issue. It's not a primary doctrine, and the most important thing is to trust in Jesus. While I agree wholeheartedly that the gospel, Jesus, is our central message, people must depend on the Bible to know what the good news is. If the Bible that relates the gospel is not accurate and truthful in Genesis, then how do we know that it is telling the truth about Jesus? This is a pretty clear um, question to have that we approach the scripture with and go, well, if I can't trust it in Genesis, if I can't trust it on page one, why am I going to trust it on whatever, page 877, where the Gospels talk about Jesus? So I think it's important that we don't just have intellectual laziness. We can have a simple argument. We can have a simple understanding of God who created the universe. But I don't think we have to check our brains out. I think it's very important what, uh, what Dr. Purdom points us to is a consistent reading of the scripture. And I want to point you to come, especially to the adult Bible study um, this summer, as we start off at least, my intent is to talk about how do we read the Bible? How do we read it consistently? Not how do we read it to get to where we want to get it to go? How do we get it to say what we want it to say? That's, that's not the right way to read the scripture. So we'll look at how do we read this creation account? How do we understand it within its, its literary genre? How do we understand it as, it as it connects to the other 66 books of the Bible? And it does. In fact, as we talk about Adam today, Adam is mentioned throughout the scripture and what is pointed out in Romans chapter 5, and we'll get there, is that the last Adam, Jesus, is more important than the first Adam. But to know this, to say you believe in a historical Adam and Eve without parents, uh, the, or de novo is, is in the Latin, from, uh, from new, you directly conflict with the prevailing winds of science. It doesn't believe there was never just a single couple. And so while the church doesn't always trust science, and, and, I, and I say, well, maybe we should interact a little bit better. We also need to know, church, that science doesn't exist in a moral or philosophical vacuum. Alistair Begg says, 
once we reject the notion of a creator to which we are accountable, it is inevitable that we set about reinterpreting the facts that confront us to fit our denial of him. If there's no God, well then let's explain the universe and then that's where we need Darwin evolutionary thought. And it doesn't exist in a vacuum of religious belief or behavior or morality. Huxley said, and a very clear atheist said, I had motive for not wanting the world to have meaning. For myself, the philosophy of meaninglessness was an essential instrument of liberating me, of liberating my, my, my sexual thoughts, my political thoughts. I mean, at least he's honest. This atheist who says, I didn't want there to be a God. Again, this isn't a sermon on, on, on young or old earth creation, and this isn't, I'm not going to dive into the science here. But I'm not going to also, I'm, I'm not going to talk about Adam and Eve as symbolic, corporate characters. I'm going to talk about them like they're real people. That God created, Adam created from the, the dust of the earth, the clay, and God breathes into him like, a, like somebody filling a balloon with life. Let me show you a few things. I'm going to try and do this with each of our characters, a slide about, about Adam and Eve. Adam's name means like red clay, clod man. That's who he is. Eve, to give life is what her name sounds like. She's the mother of all. There's this there's some terrible misconceptions and unfortunately many times preachers take the opportunity to make some um, sexist jokes during uh, talking about Adam and Eve. I don't think those fit ever. But one of the misconceptions I want to point out is is uh, your translations usually don't serve you well when it translates that Adam was alone and God provided a helper. This word helper is the Hebrew word azer. It's used to talk about strength and rescue. It's used of God as he helps his people. So helper is not like, oh, hey, can you hand me the screwdriver? I'm fixing things. Like I think about sometimes my kids help me with a project. I think of help saying, I need an electrician to come in. And he needs to do it. He needs to rescue. He needs to help because that's how it's used of God. And so this doesn't speak to the superiority of, of women over men in reverse because there's this, you've read it, right? It's only two pages into scripture that Eve comes from the side of Adam, not from his feet, so he's above her or something, but from her side. Another thing we see in Genesis, this report maybe chapter 5, it, Adam lives to 930 years old. Think about how many candles are on that cake. I mean, that is a lot. By the time you light the last one, the first one is down. That's pretty interesting to look at the, the purity and the, um, I mean, of his genetic makeup, of how good God had made him and how decay has set in because of sin. There's not, uh, you know, a whole lot more to say about them. I mean, they're the first at everything. They're the first at marriage. They're the first to have kids. They are the first. My question is, did they have belly buttons, right? Like, they didn't come out of a womb 
wow, that's controversy, but um, just something to look at. You, some of you have been staring at that belly button thing for a while. You're like, what, is, what does he mean? They're made in God's image. Does God have a belly button? No, it's, it's not to talk particularly of the shape, but that they resemble God, that, that humans were made in the likeness of, of, of God. We're made in his image. We're given at least the ability to choose, to communicate, to appreciate beauty. In the image of God, we represent him here on earth, stewarding the world, managing in the world, uh, filling the earth, subduing it. These are things that God tells us to do, not to the animals. And in fact, Adam is the one who names the animals, pointing, hey, we're over them. The humans are different. You see just early on here in Genesis that the value of life is fully established and we're made good. Now something huge changes. There's no morally neutral Adam and Eve here. They're made good. I don't know if you've had the opportunity to walk around many places where there's ruins, where you can tell what there once was. I had the opportunity almost 20 years ago now, to walk in the Colosseum in Rome and this huge stadium, you walk in and you see this thing could still pretty much work. In one sense, there's, there's, there's a lot of brokenness. There's a lot of things you say, oh, this used to do this. This used to do that. But if you add a floor, and they have at various times, this thing can still work. And I think about us as humans, how we are but glorious ruins, as someone has said. That there is brokenness and there is decay, but we were made for good. We were made for, for goodness. That, that fear is not our native land, that faith is, that, that separation from God is not how we were originally made, but the original stuff that we're made of is for fellowship with God. And so coming to him shouldn't seem unnatural. It actually should seem more natural because that's how we were made. I'm very optimistic about grace. Very optimistic about grace, friends. So then Adam and Eve, we're going to read from from, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. Before this, there is set, here's the setting, they're in Eden, they're in a garden, and there's a tree. There's a tree in the garden, a daily, hourly reminder to Adam that he is not God. Adam and Eve have to look at this tree of the knowledge of the good and evil and they have to know this garden belongs to God. You belong to God. And so in chapter 2, verse 17, God says, don't eat of that tree. On the day you eat of it, you will die. The Hebrew there seems to say something like this. Dying, you will die. I found this... um, poster years ago. I wish I had a piece of equipment to put it on, but it's this, it brought to mind this thought of, it's not just that you're going to eat it and you're going to die immediately, you're going to hate dying from this. It's not just a crisis of death, it is a process of death. And that's what sin does. That's what disobedience does. It separates us from the gift. God has, uh, in creation, before the fall, this will pain some of you to hear it. I've said it before. God gives his, his people work to do. Take care of the garden. It's work. 
This word for work that he says, to, to work in the garden, to tend for it, is used in the temple. Some would call Eden the, the, uh, the first temple that they're to take care of, that it is worship to work. And so some of us think that, no, it's, it's, it's heaven when we don't have to work. God's designed us for that, and that's why unemployment isn't just a, a worry for the church economically, it's a worry for us spiritually, that God has designed us to serve, to subdue, to bring order, to manage in this earth, on this earth. Then we see before the fall, um, not the season, but the fall into sin, we see the Huge, wonderful relationship that starts in marriage. We see the first wedding. And when Eve is presented to Adam, Adam says, whoa, man. <laughs> um, no, he didn't, he didn't speak English. But what he does is he sings the first song. He sings the very first song. He sings about his wife. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Then chapter 3 happens. 3 verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And this is where I wish I could read it for the first time. Like, is it normal to talk to animals at this point? <laughs> you know, um, and that's just a question that maybe comes now. Maybe in first reading it doesn't come there, but... The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly, you will not certainly die. The serpent said to the woman, for, the, for God knows that when you eat it, when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable from gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. They, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I have commanded you to not eat from? The man said, the woman you put with me, you put here with me. She gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So what's wrong with the world? A lot of us have a lot of ideas about that. We need new leaders, we need new this, we need new that. But sin is what is wrong with the world. Sin and shame. All of us are a member of Fig Leaves Anonymous. We have sinned. We have sinned. So go into verse 1. The serpent was crafty. Satan is crafty. Really, we, 
introduce God, Adam and Eve, not going to spend a lot of time on the devil this morning, but he shows up as a serpent, a crafty, cunning, clever serpent. Could he coil himself around Eve and kill her? Could he bite into Adam and kill her? Maybe. But he is not just after a physical death. He's not just after a temporary pain. He is after their souls. He wants others. He is going to suffer in hell for eternity. He will not be in charge. But he wants others in that same sort of agony. And so Satan questions her. Did God really say? And this is how he still works. This is why it's important to go back to the start of the story, not just so we can learn about Adam and Eve, but so we can turn what the Bible ought to do always is turn the searchlight on our own heart and go, do we realize that Satan's going to point out to us, is that really what God said? Satan wants to twist and pervert the word of God. He wants to turn, so the way he phrases the question is to turn Eve's eyes away from the 99% of the trees that she can eat from to the one that God said don't. That there's restriction, that there's order, that there is law. Well, so she responds, oh, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say you can't touch even this tree. So she does something here. She adds to the word of God. God didn't say you can't touch it. Maybe that's splitting hairs, but guys, there's stuff to see here. These words have endured through generations. When, when we read it, there's no, I feel like somebody used to say there's no horse feathers in the Bible. There's no just stuffing that's there. She's adding to God's word. She prefers legalism rather than just saying, here's what God said. She softens God's word on death from dying you will die to just die. Maybe that's a little something small there. But Satan is trying to create an uncertainty about what God has said, and he still does this today. He's only got a few tricks, friends. He's still trying to create uncertainty in what, about what God has said. And so he just then just tells an outright lie. You will not die. God is a liar. You'll be like God. So he appeals to her ambition. And so the question is before us today, whose words are you going to believe? God's life-speaking word or the devil's self-promoting lies? And so we ought to know God's word. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is faced with the devil who shows up, who tries to twist God's word. And what does Jesus do? He uses God's word. Do you know his word? Or do you just add to it with religiosity? Or do you diminish God's word? Do you soften God's word so it seems to fit the, the climate around you? Or just the... The selfishness of your own soul. Well, so they eat. You know that. Want to point out the husband is right there. Right there. Guys, we cannot. Oh, it's your fault, Eve. No. He's right there the whole time. And their eyes are open. And then they start hiding in shame. They start hiding in shame. I used to play basketball with a guy who... Um, you know, and have referees just playing open gym. After he would foul you, he'd hide his hands. <laughs> you know, 
you just like, oh, well, I, don't, I don't even have hands, right? Like, nobody could have hit you. Anybody who's ever potty trained a, a toddler who didn't want to use the big potty knows that when they disappear around a corner, there's some shame. They come back with a big bulge in the back of their pants. There's, we, we're, we still hide ourselves, right? We still try to sew together fig leaves to cover ourselves. We still try to hide from God like that's a real thing. I mean, the God who, who made volcanoes, who made viruses, who made atoms, who, A-T-O-Ms, like who made everything they're trying to hide from. How stupid do they look? How stupid do we look when we try to hide behind stuff? We take creation and try and hide from the creator. This isn't some ancient story. This still goes on today. Just rename the fig leaves. We hide in shame. We hide from each other. We hide from God. And so God shows up and asks, where are you? God does not ask questions because he needs information. He asks us questions for our good, gives us opportunity to face facts, to be honest, to confess our sins. God calling them at all is an act of grace. I mean, he made black holes too. He could have just, just, we're done here. You guys messed up. But death has come. How has death come? There is spiritual death. There is separation from God. Now, The bend is to evil. There is relational death. What does Adam do right away? He blames his wife. Right? Like, and she's like, what about that song you wrote for me? Right? Like, where did the song go? This relationship is broken between us and God. This death is very real in this relationship between him and Eve. He blames her. Well, Eve then passes the buck. Wow, this serpent. It's his fault. And now creation, Romans chapter 8 says, creation is in decay. Bondage to decay. The animals, everything, in bondage to decay. And before any before any curses are handed out, there is um, a solution. As God first speaks to the serpent, he says, somebody is coming who's going to crush your head. You'll you'll bruise his heel, but you're going to get stomped on, Satan. And so God, at the end of chapter 3, verse 21 as a, um, another foretaste of Jesus, provides for them coverings. This fig leaf stuff isn't going to work. There's animal um, coverings that he's given. There's a sacrifice made. There's blood shed so that Adam and Eve are, are able to make it in this world. This is why when Jesus shows up, it's not like out of the blue. He has been spoken about by the prophets. He has been spoken about in Genesis chapter 3. And when Jesus shows up here on the earth, he starts to reverse the effects of sin. He brings healing 
to a creation that is subject to decay. He brings new life where there has been physical death. He brings teaching where Satan has brought lies. He casts out demons. He forgives. He dies on the cross and rises again. Friends, Satan's full dominion has never been and never will be. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. I invite you to turn there. I don't have this on the screen. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 through 21. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned, to be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, we'll talk about him, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. You're going to hear the word one here a lot. The gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many. Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? goes on and on. To say, okay, there was one man named Adam, and his sin, yeah. I mean, we would have all done the same thing. I know that some of us are like, dude, if I was there, I'd still be eating honey crisp apples and playing volleyball in the Garden of Eden. No, you would not. <laughs> this is a very clear sense in which we we can understand, um, even if you wanted to interpret this allegorically to represent a corporate men that we would have eaten the fruit too. We would have. But if that one trespass, if that one mess up brought condemnation for all, how much more through the Son of God is there grace? I like how Eugene Peterson paraphrases one of these verses. He says, Sin didn't and doesn't have a chance in competition with the aggressive forgiveness we call grace. Friends, the searchlight of the Bible has got to point to your own heart as you read about Adam and Eve. That God has clearly spoken and we have disobeyed and we keep disobeying and we want to hide in shame and brokenness in relationship. But God comes asking in grace, where are you? Where are you? He wants to restore the glorious ruins Death has been conquered by Jesus. God's forgiveness actually gives us the strength to look at our ruins, to look at our sinfulness, to step out of denial and into the the goodness of one who can help us. But friends, we've got to begin to cultivate that, that original appetite that we've been given for a righteousness from God. And not just fill up on the the junk food that the world has to offer. The temporary pleasures. Cultivate an appetite for for fellowship with God. I think something we, we ought to do on this day of Pentecost is ask God to breathe in us again. 
like the clods of dirt that we are and humbly come to him and say, God, we need your breath in us. We're just dust. We need your spirit.